welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have the podcaster and somatic sex therapist, Karen Yates, join us for a conversation about her journey from the difficult change of divorce into the liberation of consensual non-monogamy. Together, we talk about being almost sex positive, the mindfuck, and I mean complete mindfuck of polyamory, and how to play outside the box of cultural expectations around sex. Y'all, Karen and I connected on a deeply spiritual level. She just started preaching all of my views, and it was so nice to sit back and let her take center stage and just beautifully express her perspectives on relationships, consent, and how to bring up desires to explore new things in the bedroom with your partner. So... Tune in. Y'all are really going to enjoy this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. So tell yeah. me a little bit about why yeah. did you start the podcast? Like, where, it, Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Why did I start the podcast? Wow. I mean, I think I like to talk about all of these things. And personally, I have listened to so many podcasts that have shaped me deeply, like to the level of just that I think are just quality that can actually affect people. And so knowing that, knowing that I like to talk about it anyways, And it had always just been like this idea on my head. And then when I was sexually assaulted, the person came to the city. It was a very triggering thing. And I was like, this is one of those times I was like, no, like I want to take and do the things in my life that I've always thought of that I couldn't do. And I was like, I'm going to start doing them. I just want to have conversations. I want people to learn and like join in. And I think part of that is also that my family is conservative. So a lot of this is like I want to pull people into these conversations and Mm. bring everybody to a more conscious space of these larger issues and then it's just fun for me so yeah yeah i get it i i get it what can i say yeah it's really fun (laughs) i think we're on the same wavelength cool cool yeah well tell me why you say that is it are we officially in yeah yeah probably (laughs) (laughs) you know so it's interesting. I was just talking uh, to someone from the somatic sex ed world, which is where I come from. Uh, one of the places I come from, because I come from a lot of different places. And I was talking about how one part that I don't talk about a lot in terms of like producing the show Wild and Sublime, the podcast, and then first it was a live show, which mm-hmm. initially was called Super Tasty and then became Wild and Sublime, is that I was not only in training to be a somatic sex educator at that point, but I was also becoming more sex positive myself. Mm. It was like a dual action. You know, I I think people who don't know me might figure that I was always sex positive and groovy, um, but that actually isn't true. You know, I mean, I was, I was like, say, mm, 
an LGBTQIA ally. You know, I was definitely liberal in my viewpoints around sexuality, but I wasn't necessarily having a lived sex positive experience. Mm. And it's funny, I someone actually interviewed me last month and said, you know, you always mention sex positivity. I don't even I don't even kind of know what it is. Mm. I kind of know, but I don't know. And and so I said, "Oh, yeah, that's really important to like say what does sex positive mean?" And yeah. it's basically that any type of sexual expression you have, this is how I look at it. Any type of sexual expression you have is fine as long as it is consensual. Mm. You know, it's it's acting upon your sexual desires. It's getting consent for your sexual desires with people who may have the mm-hmm. same desires without shame, you know, and that it's okay that no, there's no morality that needs to be laid on one's desires and one's yeah. actions. And when I say sexual, I don't mean just say heteronormative sex or even say same sex sex, but like I'm also including kink in that mm. and fetishes and things that may not even the bodies might not even touch, you know, mm. that's all. But that also goes within the sex and sensation circle. So that's yes. what I mean. Of why you think we're on the same page. well it's it i know you know i mean i i i I intuited that you know but i'm saying it for anyone that's like listening Mm. because i don't think much about the phrase sex positive i'm like yeah sex positive but i think it's always good every so often to say what does that mean what does that mean yes the importance of pulling people in to the conversation Mm -hmm. because I think that's how we're going to get change, right? We can't just look at those people like you don't get it, walk away, you know what I mean? Which is frequently what a lot of our culture does do. So I think it's important to start here of pulling people into that space and allowing people to be beginners. Well, yeah. And and the thing that was, I think, one of the reasons I think the show has been a success is that I am one of those people that was Mm -hmm. on the outside of sex positivity. In fact, a friend of mine that has been involved with the show laughs and he's like, you know, your demographic, Karen, is actually probably more the almost sex positive folks, people (laughs) that have a desire to learn more or want to be liberated, want to be free in their sexual expression, but aren't exactly sure how do I go about that? How do I break free out of these incredibly normative shackles, Mm -hmm. you know, that we all find ourselves in? Right. You know? So I have to ask then, what is your story? My story basically is that I was married for about 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, monogamously to a man. Then when I got divorced about six years ago, I had a partner that really sort of opened my eyes to my own pleasure it wasn't like I was shut down sexually or not aware of my capacity for pleasure. That's not the case. But it was more around breaking free of, at the time, I don't even think I was understood that I had limitations, you know, that I had placed limitations yeah. around my pleasure. I think I, there was like, there was a ceiling. There was an, a not, I didn't, I, some sort of invisible ceiling I didn't see, you know, like you can have this much pleasure, but no more. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I think that that has a lot to do with being raised female, mm-hmm. you know, and this idea of like, how much can you take? Um, I saw an interesting post the other day about being raised as a female, something, which of course is, you know, looking at it from the binary, but most right. people are raised female or male is this idea of 
male education is around taking mm-hmm. and female education is around defending, defending yep. and then allowing, mm-hmm. right? We can talk about Betty Martin's work in a bit, like the the wheel of consent and and her work around the quadrants of of exchange. But so yeah, so so this person in, in being with this person, it helped me see where I'd been kind of limiting myself. And it also being with him also, I became very aware of my limitations around communication, mm. about how much I was able to communicate yeah. my pleasure or desire for pleasure or exactly what I wanted. Because and here was the, here's the most critical part. I didn't know. Yeah, I did. It got it shined. Yeah. You know, I think whenever you're with new people, after you've been in a long term relationship, and you get used to the way things are in a long-term relationship and they, they bump along and it's all fine. And then you get with a new partner and it's like, oh, wow, I, it's a, it's a new, it's a fresh viewpoint. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that point that I, I realized like, I don't really know what I like and don't like, like I kind of know, but I kind of really don't. And I don't know my body. I'm not, even though I, I'm way more connected to my body than most people because I used to be in performance and, mm-hmm. you know, I was very connected to my body, obviously, in performative expression. But there's also another type of being connected to your body in terms of sensation and pleasure and what you like and don't like. And that is, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I didn't, or I don't think I was alone in it back then. I think there are many, 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 mm-hmm. many, most, I'll just say most people are not connected to their body in terms of knowing what they want or don't want mm. in terms of sensation mm-hmm. because it's about exploration and a lot of people don't give themselves time to explore by themselves yep. or with a partner. I think because there's a very rote way of doing things. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a heteronormative way of doing things, right. which is there's foreplay or a lack of foreplay. There's penetration of some sort. Right. Then there's kind of this post maybe situation and then it just kind of like and maybe there's no even no talking about what just happened yeah you know yes. so i feel like every time i open my mouth i'm just get, going into like very wide I so i love uh, it so, yes <laughs> mm, slurp, I'm slurp, slurp, oh slurp. yeah I'm, I'm ready <laughs> so so when i was with him and, and kind of not realizing I knew what I wanted. That was a weird thing. And I just sort of filed, I I filed it away big time. I'm like, okay, that's, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't even think I knew that there was a way to know. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I thought like, oh, I don't know what I like. I'll just figure it out experientially, right? As I continue to have more Mm -hmm. sexual experiences, I'll, I'll just figure it out with different partners. That's how I'll do it. And this partner was also poly. And that was another thing I sort of had to cut my teeth on, like, because I wanted to, I wanted to be with him, but I also had to figure out like, whoa, this is a mind fuck. (laughs) Like this, like Mm non-monogamy thing is blowing my mind and not Uh in a good way not Uh in a good way it's like it's like acid bath you know it's like my brain this is your brain on drugs this is my brain on non-monogamy you know it's like it's like it's like sizzle and not in a good sizzle way you know it's like i can't i can't handle this you're literally saying my last year of my life and how i got into this whole conversation (laughs) so we gotta chat some more (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like literally my story. 
And you know what was what was the upshot of all of it was truly it was very good because I was going through a divorce. Okay, so here's the thing. You know, when you're going through a terrible life change, you're always looking for an anchor. You're looking for a binky blanket. You're looking for yep. something to dull the pain of some terrible experience you're going mm-hmm. through. Well, you know, obviously there you people talk about the rebound relationship after a breakup and and the reason why the rebound exists is that you're looking for an anchor you're looking for some real quick fix to some terrible feelings that you're going through and so yeah. of course i wanted this person as this and him being poly or more to the point ethically non-monogamous was it was like oh so that's really not going to happen it, 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 and i mean like because I was just starting to learn about poly. So I did a whole bunch of reading and I really understood it is a complete mind shift. Oh yeah. Like if you're going to play the game of poly, it's a complete, it's about being secure, very secure. It's about knowing how to communicate and it's about being on top of your feelings and expressing feelings and working through it. So it's a whole, it's like grad school communication. Yeah. Well, this is why when I read more than two, I was like, whoa, my perspective of how I see all of my relationships are shifting, not just the sexual ones. And so I was like telling people about this left and right, like you you got to learn how to reground our value and our sense of our uniqueness, not of control of others. And I was just like, <sighs> it's it's mega. It's yeah. mega. And especially when you look, because I think what you're alluding to is uh, relationship anarchy, Right. The term was created by Andy Norgren mm-hmm. from Sweden, I believe, yeah. and they wrote a manifesto. It's not long. It's very cool. And I really uh, encourage people to read it because what it's about basically is looking at all relationships on a, on a level playing field. Like mm-hmm. just because you're in an intimate relationship doesn't make that relationship better. Just because you have relationships with parents or children makes those relationships better. It's really like looking at all of your relationships, friends, family, lovers, and understanding that where are you getting the most fed, which, you know, understanding where you're placing importance. Mm -hmm. And is that importance real? Or is it culturally imposed? Right? Yep. And, you know, and some of those ideas I work with, some of I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. but through the relationship I just mentioned with this person, I began to realize that, and I actually do talk about it in the Wild and Sublime podcast episode. We talk about it in what open relationships can teach everybody is mm-hmm. there's an existential dilemma, right? Yes. That we're going to die. We're all going <laughs> to I just always I'm like just to get so to, with you on everything. <laughs> maybe it's that I'm a Capricorn. I just really like to go dark and deep real quick. But like, we're going to die and no one's going to save us. <laughs> yes. And so if we're looking to a relationship to basically soothe and save us, it never will because humans are, I'm not even going to say humans are fallible, but we are our own creatures and that's not what we're meant to do. We're not meant to like necessarily save one another unless of course it's a drowning, the ship is going down. Yes, that's, we will, we will be altruistic and save people, but that that's not the role of relationships to be saving and fixing each other. You know, it's like it's like breaking the chains of codependency, breaking the chains of like looking to others to, I don't know, fulfill us or or heal us. Others cannot heal us. They can aid and support in our healing, but they cannot ostensibly heal us. Mm -hmm. Even even healers. Now, I am a healer because I in addition to doing this work, I also work in energy. I am very aware I am not 
healing people that they are agreeing we're going into a situation together and they're agreeing to be supported by me and right. in that regard we're healing is happening mm. boy i've just been like mile a minute i love it though <laughs> i love it i mean everything you're saying i'm resonating deeply and so i mean now i just have a, a, a billion nuggets that i can just pull apart so i'm super excited even just what you said last of that concept of relationships not being too there to save us that's just directly against disney culture all of nicholas sparks all of these like common narrative that romance is the thing that will make your life blossom into this whole different world that you can't even imagine and that's not true yeah and and i think it's uh you know because i came first to tantra before i came be, i came to somatic sex education and I think one of the allures to Tantra is that it gets at the heart of that oneness piece. Mm. Now, let me be clear. I do think there's oneness at the end of the line. I think there is oneness, mm -hmm. that we are all part of a field and one. But I think people want to like meld with one another and feel yeah. that transcendent feeling. That's one of the pe reasons people are sexual with one, one another. I think they mm -hmm. want to feel something. Mm -hmm. And... In fact, that's when the name changed from Super Tasty to Wild and Sublime. That sublime, I was looking mm -hmm. at the two parts of sexuality, the wildness that people want. People want that raw, feeling like an animal, like doing it, and yeah. high sensation. But then there's this other part that's spiritual. People yes. want connection. Yes. They want connection and oneness. Mm. And what have you found? <laughs> well, you know what I have found is that the most important thing is that you you get right with yourself first, mm. which is so boring. And I don't think people like to hear that. You know, when I used to hear people say, you know, I like being single right now. I'm just really into it. And I don't really want to date anyone because I'm so into myself. I'm like, you are so full of shit. You are really full of shit. And now I feel like I... I'm really at peace with myself. And it's not mm -hmm. that I don't want lovers in my life because people continue to be in my life, but it's more like I have a general sense of contentment with myself. So what that means is when I'm with people now, there's less need to fix, manage, mm -hmm. and control. You know, there's less need for me to have them turn into something that makes my life more interesting and better. Yeah, I can let them just be themselves because I'm being myself and I'm okay being filled with myself. Mm. You know, so I'm not looking for the the peg and the you know to fill my round hole, which is a bit very bad. <laughs> could be a very bad <laughs> sexual joke. Yes, but you know, um, yeah. But I'm not looking for that. You know, so there's not as many. It's not as much expectation. I think. Yes, and I feel like that's where I'm aiming my trajectory towards as well and feeling that. And I only started feeling that once I started reading the concepts about relationship anarchy. And so like, I wonder if this acceptance of self is equally like related to that. Yeah, I, I, I think it is, you know, it's, yeah. um, it, it's interesting because I don't think poly or E&M is ethical non-monogamy is for everybody. Um, I really don't think it is. I think it's, and honestly, I don't know if it ever will be the norm, but I think it's going to be more and more accepted as time goes on. Certainly. Um, but I do know that it has very much benefited me in, in that it shook up my foundational beliefs around what is a relationship. And, you know, it's like I say, I think my views of Holly and what I want continue to shift as I understand what makes me tick and yep. who I really am. And I don't know if kitchen sink polyamory is really for me, which is this idea that like, 
I know all of my partners say, like, if I have a partnership, I know everyone and we all sit around and we play mm. games, board, board games mm-hmm. together, you know, like that has happened. I've been a part of scenes like that. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the end. It's just it just continues to evolve. And I'm not really I don't even know if I need to know. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, I had another episode where someone asked me, what does what do I want? out of polyamory and I was like I have no idea you know what I mean like it's a it's a very dynamic thing that will shift depending on who is around your you know life at that time what your goals are what their goals are so like I really have no idea so and being okay with that because of the nature of this but I I want to ask you even deeper because you're saying that it allowed for this shift and I want to hear what that process actually was what were you really grappling with at that time? Well, you know, what I was grappling with was, you know, really wanting someone to be there for me. Mm-hmm. Now, I think someone, a polyamorous person would say, just because you're you're in a poly relationship doesn't mean that a partner can't be there for you. I mean, that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for this particular relationship. I think first I had to realize I had to start teasing out the concepts around what is poly and am I cool mm-hmm. with it? What is this relationship that I'm in and am I cool with it? Because I think the two, I think the two can get, the signals can get really crossed. If like someone's trying poly, so I think this happens like a lot with, with couples who have been in long-term relationships mm-hmm. and they try to try to open the relationship up. We all sort of bumble around in the beginning. There's no way that's going to be a smooth transition, yeah, of course. period. It's not. Yep. And so if you have communication problems. So let me be clear. Like, I let's get back to that original moment of like, I don't know how to communicate my needs to a yeah. partner. Right. Okay. Well, guess what? That's not just about what kind of sex you want. That's like, if you mm-hmm. can't communicate what kind of sex you want, that means you probably can't communicate, period. Okay. Because that means you're probably not able to communicate deep emotional needs. Vulnerable. Yeah. Right? So I'm, I was still grappling with that. And I think, so I'm not going to lay it on this other person. It's more like I, I was teasing out all of this stuff of like, wow, I can't express this shit. Yeah. Okay. Like, like other stuff. I can't <laughs> express stuff. I, oh, I still can't express my sexual needs or like, oh, wow, this, you know, and so it's like, yeah, it's just hitting me, you know, it was all hitting me. And and little by little, things got worked out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so this person and I ultimately broke up, felt sort of mutual. Okay. And it made sense mm. because I think I was willing to keep going and, and he was actually moving more back to it. I think a more of a monogamous kind of life. Okay. I wonder if he'll hear this, what he, what he <laughs> will have to say about that. Oh yeah. Um, Send it to but, <laughs> but, um, and then at that point I was really getting into exploring myself sexually. And so what was happening was a mega, mega exploration into all things sexual and different types of sexual expression and Mm. and so that was you know (laughs) no pun intended I had my hands full no (laughs) Uh, you know it was like really it was it was you know I was starting to date other people and and maybe less intensely and it you know it's what everyone does when they I think it's what a lot of people not everyone but I think it's a lot of people when they finish a long-term relationship there's a period where either people shut down and they become a hermit to mm-hmm. process 
mm-hmm. or they start living large. Right. You know? And it's like, you know, and everyone and maybe something in between those two polarities. But I was I was on the living large side and then became so intrigued with sexuality that I started moving into Tantra and then eventually somatic sex education. Wow. I just am almost like I get uncomfortable at times when things are so in sync that I'm like, damn, the universe has got some weird energy going on. So I just have to say because I feel like I resonate so deeply with your experience because I met someone who I was attracted to, liked, and then they wanted to do polyamory and I was not about it in any way, shape, or form. But then I read into it and was really attracted by the ideas, the concepts, the philosophy behind it of the value system to which then I started living into it fully and started asking all these deep questions kind of similar to you of like, what does it mean that I'm in this relationship and how do I restructure my understanding of love, security, independence, so many different things that like, I just really deeply resonate with that story with you. And it's, so it's, it's just fascinating to hear you explain your thoughts and me being like, that was me. <laughs> and I'm right here only. And I we just ended because it was actually a very toxic thing towards the end. But I'm in the phase of exploration. And so here you are with more wisdom that I could just cling on to. I have so many questions. <laughs> well, it's interesting as you talk. I'm like, the other thing about Polly is it really can be an intrinsically feminist exploration because what you're doing is you're moving out out of a heteronormative yes. construct i love these big words right but i'll i'll use them because what the hell they're here you're you're moving out of a heteronormative construct where typically it's born of the patriarchy it's yep. born of you know men having more power and the woman is chattel or and i know this doesn't exist anymore in this particular culture it still certainly exists in other cultures worldwide right but then the you know having the person identifying as female take power and say this is my destiny and i'm going to shape my destiny as i want and you know navigate navigating ethical non-monogamy through that lens Gabriel Smith, you know, talks a lot about being solo poly, which is what I consider myself right now too. Yeah, as well, yeah, and and so navigating that and navigating those spaces from a feminist perspective can be really interesting. Yeah, and empowering. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Marie Brown had talked about it in one of her pleasure activism books, um, just like the power of reclaiming your sexuality and your relationship structures from yeah, a patriarchal society that created marriage as a way to have ownership and property of women. Yeah, and preserve and pres- and, l- and like let's not forget like preserving the line. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff around the Ten Commandments is about actual property and preserving the lineage of mm-hmm. like. So there's a lot built into, say, the Ten Commandments that is purely, like, transactional. Yeah. <laughs> Just really about amassing wealth and keeping property where it should be. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so I try to explain this to other people and they look at me like I'm just like off in woo-woo land of feminism. But I'm like, seriously, like, I don't think everyone really takes the time to reflect on how much heteronormative monogamous culture is deeply ingrained like the psychology talks about internalized homophobia and just like this internalized sense of monogamy and if we could take the time to actually reflect on that i think people might be more open to some of these ideas and the importance of them yeah absolutely and 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 two it's not like polyamory is better it's simply becoming awake to your own power even yeah. inside a monogamous relationship mm-hmm. you know and and and, and 
I'd like to really say this isn't this isn't a man woman thing. This exists inside of every relationship. It doesn't matter your gender expression or, you know, if it's a same sex couple or not, where there is one person that is like leader person. It's mm-hmm. very rare that two people are kind of side by side in the journey. One person mm-hmm. is usually leader person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the other person is follower person mm-hmm. or or I don't know, there's usually always a dynamic that is starts getting built in. And I think you, you can kind of start getting asleep at the wheel. Mm. And it's really just about staying awake. That's all mm. it is. Every time you see a rut develop that maybe doesn't work or that there's an assumption built in that you don't have to go, you don't have to go with the uh, assumption, but it does require being conscious. And how do you begin that process if you don't even see what you're missing? Mm. Well, I think it typically for most people starts happening when you start having problems. Mm. Yeah. There's not a problem with the relationship unless you start feeling there's something amiss or there's there's tension or there's conflict. Mm-hmm. And that conflict might just be inside of you, mm-hmm. right? You know, your partner might be fine. But if there's a conflict inside you, then there's something going on and you deserve to investigate, you know, instead of sweeping it under the rug, which is what a lot of people do because, you know, it's scary. It's scary. And I know one of the things that I kept really grappling with in my marriage was, oh, God, if I go down this path, everything's going to blow up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just kind of intrinsically like, I don't know if I really want to investigate this because right. I don't really know where it's going to lead. And it's, I think it's going to lead somewhere scary, meaning change. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the question, right? Is ignorance truly bliss? I mean, you chose to investigate and had the option granted, you won't know if you would have stayed in ignorance, but why did you choose not to stay in ignorance? Well, I don't even know how ignorant I was. I mean, I knew I kept mm. coming up, it kept bumping up against the fact that I knew that something was amiss. I mean, let me say, you know, my husband and I had a lot of conversations about it. It was sort of a well-known fact in the Mm. relationship that there was an issue, right? That there was an issue. It wasn't like we were like both like, hello, here's the casserole, dear. It's dinner time. You know, some like weird, like like, hypnotic, hypnotic state. It was like, no, we talked about it. And it just, things just didn't get resolved, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's like what happened. So it was more about like, how much was I willing to put up with my discomfort? And mm. to be honest with you, eventually I surrendered. Tell me more. <laughs> well, eventually I let go. I I was just getting so uh, worked up that I said to myself, you know what? A very wise friend had said to me years ago, you're going to know when the relationship needs to end. You're going to know that. And so stop worrying. And I thought that was such sage advice because I was really, I didn't, I didn't know really what to do. I mean, I did a lot of self work, a lot of investigating. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point I gave up. I really did. I gave up and I'm like, you're going to know. And you know, I did know. Eventually there was a turning point and it was like, oh yeah, it's over now. It's over. And and it pretty much was exactly what my friend had said. You're going to know. And guess what? I knew. Hmm. And so there was what it was was a surrender plus a trust. Yeah. It was a surrender 
but also knowing I'm going to trust that I will know, even though I'm so confused. Mm. This is the fun point where I say to myself, do I want to self-disclose the things that are deeply personal and how I relate with you, or do I just focus on you? And I'd like to have a little bit of space to talk because I think the problem with that scenario and that advice is, is that that trust also requires knowing yourself because I personally had never broken up with someone. And so I think that level of like actually knowing when it is time to leave is a difficult thing for so many people because my level is like, what, you know, is it physical abuse? Like how low was I cutting that bar? And typically emotional abuse was never really in that like area of, you know, knowing the importance of how much that deeply affects you. And so at that time in all these relationships I've been in, I was always like, I'll know when it's time. And I was waiting for that time to be when I was like angry or just like so deeply knew that it was time to leave. And I've never had that. I always have such love and compassion for these people that I never want to walk away. And so like even there of what you're saying there, it's like, oh, it's not that easy because I don't even – my gut seems to be inherently repeating toxic patterns. And so it really took a ignoring of my sense of self to be like more logical and be like, this is no longer healthy. I have to walk away. Yeah. And I mean, it's compounded by the fact that you're a psychologist (laughs) or moving in that direction because (laughs) so you are naturally working to kind of understand the other person. This is what you, this is your wheelhouse. I'm going to understand you. I'm going to have compassion for you and I'm going to help you get to wherever you need to go or let your life help you and unfold your life and so then so this is who you are and now you're having a relationships with people and and like Mm -hmm. with this idea of like compassion and love and support and then like where are you in that you know sure yeah (laughs) so i mean i'm laughing laughing like ruefully i guess rueful a rueful laughter but yeah it's it becomes hard and I would have to say that the best breakups I've had are just come from, this is what I want. And then the other person being like, yeah, that's not what I want. Mm. Like as time has gone on past the big breakup, right? Like it's, it becomes more like easy. Mm. Like again, bringing back to self, like if I'm more centered, it's like, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah, that's not what I want. Okay. Mm. Oh, this is really painful, but like we got to say goodbye. Okay, bye. (laughs) You know, and, and and I think there's this aspect with long-term relationships of time, right? Of you invest yes. time and then it becomes like, but wait, we've been together this many years or, but we've put mm-hmm. in all this time. Like, mm-hmm. like, it's not like a stock portfolio. Like it's like at a certain point you have to leave, right? Right. It's in the investment bias. We know, you know, through psychological research that when we pay higher value for things monetarily we think they're better and so we've invested all this time and now we want our return investment and so to walk away and just say that was potentially not what i expected out of this and just start afresh and walk away from all of that investment is so so difficult and scary because it's still what you said earlier here's when you really investigate these questions you find that the answer involves change Like, that is never easy. No, people don't want to change. No. I mean, it's just like, people don't want to change. We don't. 
Like that's just But like, it's fascinating <laughs> to me that happiness is on the other side, right? Like or whatever we want to call it, maybe deeper understanding of self, deeper connection to people, whatever, whatnot. And it's it's so interesting that we get stuck in these ruts and avoid change that could make well, our lives I, better. I have to I have to call you on that. Is call it me. is happiness on the other side? I <sighs> mean, you, you we assume it is. Yeah, for me it has been. Yeah, that's true for me it has been too. But that is not is that true? happiness is on the other side i mean like let, let's look at people in syria is it their life has been upended is there happiness mm-hmm. on the other side change i mean mm. I, and i think what may i'm just might be talking like yeah off the top of my head but i think about being human mm-hmm. you know i've been studying just basic cultures recently older cultures and it's like a lot of a lot of it was just about survival mm-hmm. you know like you don't want to get eaten by the mastodon or whatever i don't know my dinosaurs but like there's famine there's right. in, there's food food insecurity um of course this is still true for many people in many mm-hmm. parts of the world but like it's 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 like just getting by and so change is really about will we survive if there's change and i think that's baked into our dna like change doesn't always mean something good mm-hmm. i mean it's very easy for you and me to have this conversation that yeah psychological change and growth does bring about like nuance and richness and layers and i would never change a single thing that has happened to me for the um, insights i've had but yes there's also other parts to change which are which are not great yes i think when i was thinking about it in my head i was like thinking about the concept of change paired with personal reflection growth meaning making i've been really holding on to this quote that pain is inevitable but suffering is a choice. And Mm -hmm. I think in that, right, like there are so many atrocities that involve change or things that we don't want, but really how we understand it and our connection to that and in that personal growth and reflection allows for us not to suffer. And in that, I do think that we can find happiness or at least so I hope that that level of connection to ourself and understanding and finding a sense of contentment I think is happiness. Yeah, I, I would agree. Happiness is the byproduct of right living. Um, and, and so it's this idea of like happiness comes and goes. Yeah. But if you have the things in place, reflection, centeredness, what have you, it's interesting we're talking about, it's, we're talking about perception really right now. And yeah. so it's interesting because I broke my arm in a couple of places uh, at the end of February. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting experience because I broke my dominant arm and I couldn't, you know, pick up a knife and cut food. I couldn't prepare meals. And so it a lot of change had to happen in my life. But what I noticed is I just kept not putting the focus on my pain or my mm. discomfort. And this is based on a lot of mindfulness practices that I already have in place about where where is your attention going? Mm. Is it going toward lack or is it going toward benefit? right? Or the things that are working or appreciation. And so I just kept Mm -hmm. gently moving my mind away and accepting. It was very natural. It was very organic. And it was pretty surprising. And at the end of the day, I went through the whole experience. It was very enriching. Uh, I learned a lot about myself, about asking for help. Yeah. Uh, And I was okay. And I'm like, and now I look at the scar because I had to have a surgery and uh, I know I have a plate put in and all those things. And I look at the scar and I'm like, well, yeah. Like, this is my tattoo. This is my, mm. I don't know, commemorate something that I went through. Yes. Um, it's interesting. Yes. Learning similarly a lot of the concepts of what you're talking about of like 
slowing down because of various things that are impeding our normal level of functioning and how do we learn to adapt to that level of change and accept it and surrender, which you said earlier, love that word, been holding on to that word deeply, and shifting the perspective from instead of like, why can't I do this to what can I do, right? And keeping that level of gratitude of focus there and how big of a perspective shift that can be to changing how you see all of life. Yeah. As you said that, what can I do? Mm. I started thinking about climate change. It's very interesting about what can I do because I think people get so... I'm going to move the conversation a little bit. Anywhere. I think people, especially around something like climate change, which is global, and we can feel so oppressed by our own despair there's a, a sense of not of shutting down and i was reminded recently that in the beginning of the 90s i was in when i was very young i was involved in something called the deep ecology movement and um joanna massey was part of it wrote a book called thinking like a mountain and and the the movement posited that the reason people don't do anything is that they feel so much despair that they don't want to go there they're afraid of their despair. And so what you need to do is you need to feel your despair, know it's there, and then that helps you act. And I thought that was really, really wise. And, you know, recently I live on a park. So a lot of people barbecue in this area. The city of Chicago has these coal bins that are red and they're for hot coals, but they don't label that they're for hot coals. And so then there's not enough of them. And what people do is they dump the coals on the trees, on the tree roots like near the trees because there's not grass there. So they're like, oh, this is cool. There's a bit of dirt. So I'm going to dump my hot coals on these tree roots. Oh, no. And and so I look at it and I look at it. And last year I called the alderman. I'm like, hey, we need more. This is Chicago. Hey, alderman, we need more coal (laughs) bins. But this year, like I noticed, I'm like, there was even less coal bins. There was more grilling. And the coal bins aren't even labeled. So people don't even know what the red bins are for. And so I go, I, I ran into the guy, one of the guys in charge of the parks, my park. And he's like, yeah, it's like, there's nothing to be done. He was so, <laughs> he was so he's like, there's nothing to be done. Nihilistic. If you lay yeah, if you label it, people aren't going to do anything. It was just, it was a very protracted reason. And I walked away and I'm like, well, I did do something. I talked to him last year. I called the alderman. And so now I'm sort of left pondering, well, what do I want to do now? Exactly. Do I want to go around with a Sharpie marker and <laughs> write on the coal bins? Like yeah, hot coals only? What do I want to do? Like, do Or do I want to let go? With choice, we just kept making choices and then we keep assessing and making choices. And how the hell do we get here? I, I, uh, I went oh. down this... We're rabbit hole and deep. I'm about it. I'm about it. This is half of the fun of co-creating something with someone is that this level of conversation can't be planned for. You just go with where your soul goes. I wanted to say, though, I was th- as you were speaking, I was thinking about the power that we have within climate change because frequently it does feel like something that is so out of our control, right? Like how can we actually stop these larger things that are occurring? And really, I've Thinking about that from a trauma response lens, you know, like trauma is when there's a power over you and we have what freeze, fight, or flight. And I really think kind of what you're talking or about. Or appease. Yeah. Appease is another one. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Interesting. I want to talk about yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, thinking about that to how we respond to these larger issues, I think would make a lot of sense of like, yeah, we freeze. I don't know what to do. It's too big and I'm going to walk away from it. Right. And, and like, there's, 
uh, during the live show, I had an ending moment called the Sermon on the Pubic Mound. Ooh, oh, and preach, and then preach. and then, <laughs> and then I would I I also continue it on the podcast from time to time. But it's this idea that like change is super gradual. So, and what I mean by that in terms of climate change is keep talking about it. It's about making different choices. I don't know. I've been vegetarian most of my life because I realized this was it was really damaging to the planet to be eating cows. I made a decision a while ago to just completely limit my plastic use as best I can. And it's all about degrees. It's all about degrees of like, what can we do? How can we have an impact? We're a tiny, tiny stone that has been dropped in a, in a pool of water. We do have a ripple effect though. Right. And that's how trauma gets addressed too. Trauma gets addressed in the body with a gentle resetting, Mm -hmm. you know, because I, I, was trained in somatic sex education and so you can't give people too much too fast the body can't take it the nervous system resets very slowly you know and it needs time to process and it needs time to reset and i think that that's true of of things like climate change could you say more about the nervous system resetting i'm kind of, i'm just very interested because i do think this is all related in concepts of how do we be present whether it be with the realities of our literal environment our home you know mm-hmm. hierarchy of needs here home and mm-hmm. that does deeply affect our existence in the world including our connection to our body and so thinking about how to re-regulate our nervous system to you know trauma of all different types sex nature all these different issues Mm-hmm. How does someone even begin that process? Well, so there's some pretty great thinkers that talk about somatic work. Peter Levine is like pretty much one of the titans of somatic. He began the process called somatic experiencing. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, if you look at the bestseller that Bessel van der Kolk wrote called The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. You know, major, major psychologist who was right at the forefront of PTSD with the Vietnam vets, as well as on the forefront of, of medicine and regulating mood, mood, mm-hmm. mood regulators, who then came to the conclusion, oh, wow, it's all a nervous system thing. And he came to that realization through the work of... I don't know if his name is pronounced Porges, but Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory, mm, yeah, which is you know the fact that there is a major nerve running through our body called the vagus nerve, and it runs from the brainstem through to I think in pretty far down, not entirely into our genitals. I think it runs like for um, people with vulvas, it runs right to the cervix. I'm not really sure people with penises where it runs to, but it runs through. More importantly, it runs through like the vocal cords, the the lungs, the um, the diaphragm, the um, intestines. And so, when you're dysregulated, mm-hmm. that nerve gets very affected. And so, what you'll see is trauma coming in, like breathing problems or vocalization problems or Mm. IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. There's a whole host of trauma-related problems that start presenting themselves because the nervous system has gotten hijacked. So a lot of times somatic work, which is slow, yoga is is a great resetter. It's slow. There's somatic exercises you can do. There's Mm. tremoring, tremoring. What is it? TRE, a psychologist developed this based on seeing people traumatized from wars. He developed this thing where the body basically tremors because he noticed that animals tremor after after some traumatic event to sort of reset their nervous system. So it's all about kind of helping the nervous system reset. 
So work like that can be hugely beneficial. There's EMDR, you know, working with the eyes and or tapping, working with the hemispheres of the brain. All of this stuff is like built into the body. And so when you ask what can people do, I think first it's really this understanding that your body is there and your body has registered every experience you have ever had in your entire life. And to think that you can just talk your way through it. And this is not to disparage talk therapy. Because for most people, it can be very beneficial to like give voice to the secrets we've been holding inside, give voice to the shame. These are hugely important things. Mm -hmm. But you can't forget that the body has had impact. The body records. It's like a record. It has recorded every groove. It has recorded every blow, every response you've had where your you know, sphincter tightens or you've mm -hmm. held your breath. You know, so if you've grown up in a dysregulated household, that it does have an impact. Your nervous system has been impacted. And so, and you can see, you can see trauma in people's bodies. You can see it in how they hold themselves that they're hunched and concave. That's not just because you've been sitting at a computer all day long. It's a kind of a protective gesture. I think we're on the cusp really of understanding. Um, you're seeing the word somatic a lot more. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be continue, continue mm. to be really recognized as important work in helping people surmount things. I mean, I know for myself, it has been invaluable. Mm. It's absolutely been invaluable to really moving through these, these dysregulated emotional states mm -hmm. to, cal to calm, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Right. And the potential theory behind how that works is the thought that, at least from my understanding, that when you're doing like bilateral tapping while doing talk therapy, the concept is that you're talking about a something that is very activating, like a trauma verbally, but also doing a tapping movement on both sides, which is a calming activity because it is a repetitive thing that our brain can do at a lower, you know, less activated nerve state. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I actually did tapping. I did, I did it for a series of weeks with a therapist. And it's also, you know, when you're moving contralaterally, you are actually moving different you, your mm. your your brain your hemisphere the hemispheres of your brain are both getting lit up so there is kind of a movement that's happening because trauma gets stored in you know like these cyclical you know neurological loopings in the brain so it's like how how to move it how to move it into processing or or you know the, the big word now is how to how to metabolize the trauma I could say a lot on it and i don't even consider myself an expert but i'm realizing more these days like I don't have to like sit from a, an experts. I can just talk about it yeah. and like, give information. And if people are interested, you know, you hear something and you're like, ping, I'm going to go look that up, you I know, and literally put show notes of different articles and ideas for every episode. Because when I talk about something, I'm like the person who finds that interesting, go read the experts on it. We are just like dropping in the water of the knowledge that you can really like explode into if you want mm -hmm. to and I, that's part mm -hmm. of why i love this podcast because then you're just creating <laughs> ideas and further thoughts yeah but yeah i think it's it's very interesting because this is something that's only just coming into the psychology field and gaining acceptance now so and a lot of this crazy. is novel you know that people are still debating it and it's you know location within science and so I think that many people listening to this episode will not know much about this. Right. Well, yeah. And the other piece of it, like, so in, in somatic sex education. Yeah. Tell me more. Which I uh, studied. It's about hands-on work. So the, so what the other part of it is, is that psychologists, in, when you're licensed, 
psychologists can't put their hands on people. You know, that's basically like part of license. You know, there's certain things that can't happen within a, a talk therapy session, right? Because what, what happens in a somatic, can, can happen, doesn't always happen. I mean, this is one aspect of somatic sex work is that you're actually laying hands on people. You're actually working in, in a massage way with their bodies and helping them reset their nervous system in, in, a, in a deeper way, mm. right? It's working with people in their full body. So genitals, arms, legs, torso. And so this is why, you know, we have all sorts of laws that don't, allow this work to be done legally but there is tremendous relief mm. when people are able to experience this kind of work which is very regulated it's boundaried it's you know it's not about having sex with a client is a, is a very boundaried clothing on kind of situation for the practitioner this kind of work is really at the edge I think it's going to be gaining more acceptance as the years go on because it can be not that everyone needs it, but for some people, that kind of level of open heartedness and compassion, that level of work is really important. But there's other way, so many other types of somatic sex education that doesn't require that level. Um, I think of Betty Martin's work, Three Minute Game and the Wheel of Consent, which is hugely impactful, getting people out of stuck transactions with their partners mm -hmm. around, you know, who is serving, who is taking, yeah. who is allowing. And that's amazing work as well. And I've done that kind of work with clients too. As you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself that I don't know if I know what somatic sex education really looks like. Well, it's a lot like, <laughs> you might not know this term either. It's like, it's really an expansion of sexological body work, which is uh, sexological body work was begun by a man named Joseph Kramer in mm, the 70s. He was a massage therapist, and he realized that people still needed to be touched. Um, and so there was a lot of body isolation that was going on during the AIDS years. And so what he did is he devised something called sexological body work. So it wasn't about having sex with someone. It was about giving people massages mindful massages with release at the end it was within a more boundaried container like the practitioner work had clothes it was done on a table rather than a bed it was really holding people in loving compassion right ultimately it helped people be able to work through obstacles around pleasure and so the somatic sex education movement was kind of born out of sexological body work. Sexological body work still exists. It's still being taught. And now uh, somatic sex education, the container was a little larger. So there was more somatic uh, theory built into it initially, like Peter Levine, uh, Stephen Porges's work, and all of this idea around trauma and how trauma affects the body. And so what somatic sex education addresses is... It can be hands-on. It doesn't always have to be hands-on, though. It's about helping people expand their capacity to experience pleasure. Because a lot of people are cut off from their ability to feel their pleasure. It helps people understand the question I had at the beginning, what do I like? It helps people get clearer on how they process pleasure and what is pleasurable or non-pleasurable to them. It allows people on a micro level as you work with a client to make choices and become aware, mm -hmm. right? So the I think the thing that you have to really understand about the work is it's unlike massage where, okay, so you're on a table, right? And the massage therapist is just going to come in and say, hi, how are you doing? And then they're going to, you know, start 
you know, working your shoulders. They're going to start massaging your shoulders and they're just going to keep working. They might find out you might have a knee issue, so they'll leave your knee alone. But for the most part, they're autonomously working on you. And unless you're in pain, you're not going to stop it. Or even if you are in pain and you don't have a good boundary, you're still going to let it go. But the thing about somatic sex education is the client is in charge. So the educator is never touching the client without the client directly giving voice to the desire to be touched. Mm. And so this can be a much slower process as the client comes to a new understanding of how do they want to be touched next. The question becomes, how can I give you more pleasure, right? And so then the client has to sit there and think, hmm, okay. So it's really moving out of sort of a built-in rut. It moves you into a more awareness about how you are connected to your body and what your Mm -hmm. body wants. And so it it brings about a deeper listening. And so ultimately, as you move through this, you'll begin encountering, and I'm speaking from a client perspective, you'll begin encountering yourself more deeply. And Mm -hmm. it's done really at your own pace. So, So it's like, it's never forced. There's no kind of let's push through, let's figure this out. It's it's basically for people who've been traumatized, forcing through is like the last thing you want to do. Let's not forget there's cultural trauma. So this isn't just about I have sexual trauma. I mean, think about the work of um, Resma Menachem. I think that's his I think that's his last name. And my um, my grandmother's mm. hands, you know, talking about racialized trauma in the body. There's so there's a lot of trauma culturally that gets embedded uh, in the body. So that's part of what somatic sex education is. It's helping people process trauma, and it's also helping people go past limits on pleasure. So I want to ask even more, like, what does that consent process actually look like? Is When you talk about consent, people kind of get tripped up in this question of when do I ask and when mm-hmm. is asking too much and how much asking is too much? Yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic question. And I think it's a critical question. And I think it's a question that is kind of, I'm glad you're asking it because I don't think people really understand that consent is not, hmm, consent is a multi-level process. It's not a one and done. It's a continual process. Getting back to like, Betty Martin's work. She developed this thing called the three minute game where each partner asks one another, how do you want me to touch you for three minutes? And it gets, it's, it's an exercise. It's a practice. It's not like do this every single time you are intimate with someone, but it helps people really get out of this sense of unconsciousness Mm -hmm. around touching one another. So when you ask someone, how do you want to touch me? Or how do you want me to touch you for three minutes? Then, you know, the mind explodes because we don't get asked this. And then there's negotiation about like, okay, you can touch my arm, but I don't want you to touch it really heavily. Or there's always, and you're always free to redirect your partner in the middle of the three minutes. All of this work, which is micro, it's micro work, but it wakes people up. It wakes people up to their unconscious assumptions and what they want or don't want. And Mm. people can begin seeing where do they have issues like where is it problematic so getting back to like how do you even begin you know one therapist i had on the show her name is carrie jameson she talks about meta communicating it's enough to say to your partner you know what i feel kind of weird about saying this so number one naming your uncomfortability yeah like i feel a little nervous about saying this to you tonight as we're about to have sex but I I want to try something different tonight. 
I want to be a little more verbal about when you're touching me and when you're not touching me and how that's impacting me. Like whatever boundary you want to set. I think a lot of people don't talk like in the kink community it is very accepted that you're going to discuss pretty in depth what is going to be happening in your in your scene which is you know basically the 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 container of whatever kink practice you're going to be doing right that's pretty accepted that everyone talks but in like more normative sex there's no talking Mm -hmm. it's more i mean at best you're going to get you know are we going to be practicing safe sex or, you know, like it's going to be bare minimum. So to be able to begin a conversation just saying, hey, I'm a little nervous or I feel weird about asking, but I really want to try something new, that at the least is going to lower the pressure or that's mm. going to like, I think a lot of stuff has to be talked about outside of the bedroom. It has to be talked out about like, so in a neutral space and people talk about this all the time and it sounds very uncomfortable, but really it's the best thing. What does that look like? It can look like, hey, you know, are you up for a conversation right now? So first checking in with your partner. I think you, I think you have to do that, like not like right before like the TV show is starting. <laughs> <laughs> or it's more like, hey, are you are you open for a conversation right now? I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind. And then once you get clearance, be like, you know, I've been having a lot come up recently for me. And like, I'm just aware of my own blah, blah, blah. And I would like to do blah, blah, blah. And are you open to that? Or I've noticed that our sex life has been kind of like the same, right? And I'm like, I would like to try this. I'm like going through things really now, now very quickly, but I realize this is, these are very big deals yes. for people. Yes, I'm like these scary conversations. These are very scary conversations. I know they're scary, so I'm aware of that. Like yeah. if you suddenly want your partner to begin like spanking you really, really hard, yeah, or you don't like your partner spanking you really really hard and you want got to put a hard limit like these are all like difficult conversations yeah right but they really need to happen outside of the bedroom Mm. you know i mean i could talk at length about this but um i think the other thing that's really good for people to understand on the other side of it like not putting the onus on the person who is doing the communicating or that has a problem is that you also have to be noticing physically what your partner is doing in bed if your partner is tensing up if your partner is breathing more shallowly and not in a good shallow way if there is like a pulling away from you or a recoiling or like some sort of like thing like that's a moment to stop and be like hey i'm noticing you're having a reaction i just wanted to check in is there anything you would like me to do differently Mm. that doesn't have to be scary that's compassionate and it's just like stating what are you observing saying i'm stopping for the moment i'm checking in how are you doing that's intimacy Mm. that's noticing something i know I'm i'm throwing a lot of ideas out but but there are like things people can just start doing a little bit differently. Yes. And I think that once you hit that level of intimacy where you deeply see one another, that's how you get the wild and sublime, right? Like yeah. then you you can say what you want and know that you will be seen and never be taken advantage of because there is that level of checking in always regardless of what you're doing as long as there is consent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was with someone the other night and I reminded him of um, the first time we met, we were making out and and he was very mindful about any time his hand moved, mm-hmm. he was like, you know, kind of advancing, right? He would check in 
And it was the very first time someone had so consciously worked with consent with me, like Mm. at a really micro level. And I thought to myself, wow, I've never had this experience. And it is extraordinary. Is it? It was extraordinary. And it was, it was so, it was hot. But more than that, it was relieving because mm-hmm. I will say, you know, being enculturated female, yeah, there is this idea of you defend. You're always in a defensive posture if you're working with someone who's been enculturated as male. Yep. And so there is like this, they take, I allow or defend, mm-hmm. right? And so what it suddenly did is everything kind of fell away and it simply became two people communicating and not with this fear of, at some point, I'm going to have to set up a barrier. And it was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. And it changed me, you know. It, so, like, let's not forget, in all of these sort of interactions, they, they can, we, we've been talking about change. They can really change people mm-hmm. for the better. It's interesting, though, because that concept is in direct opposition to the hot and steamy sex that is so passionate and you're so on the same page that so much so you just roll into it and you don't even have to communicate because you're that in tune with one another. Sure. Absolutely. And that exists, too. And I'm not negating that either. Mm. It's more like I think there's a point, though, when that will die. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that culture. Well, because I I think that that is media, movie, all these things that we're not seeing the full, you know, real human experience of. Yeah, I I agree. But it is real. That's true. But I think I think there's like the new relationship energy will it it, it's Mm. it's it's bound to change. And so if you build in the communication in the beginning, it just makes it hotter. Mm. I mean, I think people think consent is not hot and it can be extremely hot. Well, so yeah. So I want to ask you again then, how do you check in with consent? You had this experience that was micro. Like where do people start? How much is too much? How much? I mean, I think we've defined how much is too little. Mm -hmm. But really, Mm -hmm. where do you start that journey? Are you speaking with like in a long-term relationship that already exists or a new relationship or what? I think all of them, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, it's just like... I think that you're right. That's a very good point. It probably changes depending on when, you know, if you're in a long-term relationship, a consent has been established for certain behaviors or whatnot. Yeah. But I think that I just want to hit at the practicability of the concepts that you're talking about. And you talked about how that micro level of consent was so radical and changing for you. And is that maybe where we all should be starting? And like, what did that actually look like? Because that's still vague. You know, like, you don't have to give the juicy deets, but I think it's an important concept. Yeah. Well, I mean, the deets are exactly what I said. It's like every time there was a major shift in the action, there was a checking in, Mm. like, there was an asking and, hey, is it okay if I do this? And then I would say, yes or no. You know, mm-hmm. and some, I think there's a cool thing of like practicing your no, like when, yeah. like, and just until you feel like ready to say yes, right? Oh, man, you know, I think your question is, uh, it's a big one. And there's mm-hmm. no, there's no, right. uh, there's no immediate answer. I think conversation and communication is really good. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big deal. And what I mean is you don't have to go to like, you don't have to plumb the depths. What if you just try something slightly different? Just like start experimenting with something slightly different that is low stakes. If you want more foreplay, 
let's just say, hey, you know what I would love is just making out tonight. Let's just make out. Let's take sex off the table. I just want to make out tonight. What do you think? I think heavy boundaries can be really, really hot. Like, yeah. you know what? Like, let's let's not take any clothes off tonight. Let's see what happens. Or let's let's do this for only like 15 minutes. Or, hey, what happens if we do this? And just start just experimenting with states that move you out of what you normally have been doing. And I think because those states that you're talking about are sex, right? It's It's really taking off the concept of our patriarchal understanding of sex being penetrative sex and recognizing that kissing and just making out is another form of sexual intimacy and compatibility that you're, I guess it's not the same, but do you get what I'm, do you understand what I'm saying? Like this concept that it is all different forms of sexual expression. And oh yeah. Cause then that night where you're just making out is just as meaningful as, you know, if you are experiencing penetration, whatever you want to, you know, compare it to of your deepest form of intimacy with your partner and their body. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's getting out off of the script exactly. that there, it always has to look a certain way or mm-hmm. it's not sex. That's bullshit. Right. You and know, how much trauma is locked into the concept of, I mean, at least from my personal experience, I felt of sex is penetration sex is penetration and really walking away from that has allowed so much freedom to enjoy different modalities of sexual interaction with other people and seeing the value of it. Absolutely. I, from my personal experience, it was always like this concept of, I, I think it was partially being raised as a woman of just, you must give sex to a male-bodied person. And so that always caused a lot of trauma for me whenever I was in partnership with people with penises. And so it's something that I've heard resonated back from a lot of my friends of just this like sexual pressure that they have to give sex to their long-term partner, all these things. But really when you take off the concepts of what sex is, some people might enjoy making out and how deeply intimate that can be. But for some reason, we feel like that's not enough. Yeah. And and I think the other, the other piece of it is this isn't just a female identified thing. Like mm. that, the thing about the patriarchy is it imprisons it imprisons All everybody. Us, yeah, and so just because you have a penis doesn't mean you always want to have sex. And I think that's a really, Ugh, really yes. important thing because uh, a lot of people feel burdened by this idea. Mm. And I'm talking about folks with penises feel mm-hmm. burdened by the idea that they have to perform and that they have to put out and that it yes. has to look a certain way and their dicks have to be really hard. And that is, that is just as toxic. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It just, and it drives the Viagra culture, you know yeah. what I mean? And big pharma loves mm-hmm. that, loves that insecurity. Yeah, it does. So there's a lot of reasons that folks benefit from getting off the script of what is sex. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I also want to be mindful of like how we could probably talk about these things forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am I am feeling a little like, woo, we I know, yeah, that's, that's what I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, so then I can segue into this question of I think we talked about a lot of things, but I do ask everyone on the show, what is one thing that you wish other people understood was more normal? Uh that we are oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. This is this is a hard question. I know. I I think that we all are sexually insecure. We have sexual insecurities. And even the most 
fabulous person Mm -hmm. you know but like you were like that person would never be sexually insecure because they're fabulous or they're beautiful or they're styled or whatever like people like the level of insecurity is mind-blowing is mind-blowing and i know this because i've talked to enough people so i know this and so just know that whatever sexual insecurity you have Mm -hmm. everybody has their own thing too You know, everyone's got it too. Why is it an issue? Because we don't talk about sex. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't talk about these things. So we don't know that other people are also like, I'm not getting enough sex or, you know, I have a problem with this or, you know, we don't, we're not really aware of other people's problems and insecurities because we're really not talking about it a Mm. lot, but people are very insecure. Mm. So that's, that's very normal. I think we don't have to be, I think we can definitely not be. Right. Truly, truly. Right. But it's it's okay. Right. And then the beauty of normalizing something like that is it allows people to let go of the negative self-talk that they felt for all of those things and find more, not only compassion for yourself, but also community to know that you're not alone. I think that's one of the biggest things of the human experience is we don't want to be alone. So knowing that other people feel that way allows us to be more mindful and more present with ourselves and with others. So I... Mm-hmm. I just think it's such a beautiful thing that you named, and I'm so thankful that you named that and all the places that this conversation went to. I It was just nice to sit back and let someone preach my own like sermon. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's great. Well, it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, good. I'm Thank glad. You. Is there Thank somewhere – I mean, okay, so Wild and Sublime, where do you want to plug people if they are resonating with you to find yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So I host and produce a weekly podcast called Wild and Sublime. It has been uh, on the airwaves for about a year now. It is an inclusive talk show about sexuality, all types of sexuality. Uh, nothing is off the table. And uh, we do interviews. I do interviews, panel discussions. Um, there's also audio from the the live show that was done from 2018 to 2020 uh, yeah, in Chicago. Wow. And uh, yeah, come come listen. And if you are interested in working energetically with me, biofield tuning, mm-hmm. which is a type of sound modality, you can find me at karen-yates.com. And you can find Wild and Sublime on your podcast player or at wildandsublime.com. Amazing. Thank you. You're quite welcome. I appreciate it. This was so fun. Ah. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Yor Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show. 